Father and God, we're thankful this morning uh, for all the blessings that we get to enjoy in our lives. Help us to be uh, fully aware of the fact that you're the giver of every good gift and that uh, all that we have or ever will have comes from your hand. We appreciate, Father, the, the wisdom that we see demonstrated through your word. We know that that wisdom is a reflection of your wisdom. We're grateful that you see things that others cannot see. You know things others cannot know. And in that uh, great knowledge, you provide for us the things we need, both now and for eternity. Father, we're grateful that we have times to be together for study. We want our study to be helpful. We pray that we'll have uh, open minds and interested hearts. We pray that we'll use the things we learn, not only for our betterment, but for the help of others as well. We're always conscious of the fact that we are imperfect and we ask you to forgive us for those things that we have done or failed to do that are not in harmony with your will. We ask for this forgiveness not through our merit, but through the blood of Jesus. And we pray that uh, we will make the resolve in our hearts to be closer to you and more in tune with all that you want for us. We pray all of this, Father, through the name of Jesus. Amen. Stafford North, uh, professor of Bible and a couple of other things at Oklahoma Christian University, used to tell uh, students in his homiletics class, the study of preaching, that it was more difficult to preach on a shorter sermon, a shorter uh, sentence or statement in Scripture than it was for preaching on a longer passage because you had to focus a lot more. And, and I believe that statement is true. Experience says it's true. If, I, if, if I'm just preaching on one or two verses, then I know that I've got to really work at that. The longer a passage is, the more you can sort of take different uh, parts of it. Now, why am I telling you that? Well, probably not for any particular reason except to say that I've got my own philosophy that it's a lot harder to teach an entire book in one class than it is to talk about just a couple of verses. And so it's actually uh, the other way in, in, in Bible class teaching. And... And again, the reason I'm saying that is that when we finish today the 40 chapters of Exodus, we will have covered 90 chapters in less than 90 minutes. Uh, that's pretty difficult to do. So forgive me, please, if we skip something that you feel like we should have talked about. Uh, we're going to have to move through the material probably quicker than some would like. The name that is get, given to the second book of the Old Testament, Exodus, 
comes to us from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation prior to the time of Christ of the Hebrew Scriptures. Scriptures originally were produced in Hebrew. Uh, before uh, the coming of Christ, there was a time when Greeks wanted to translate that into their language, and they did. And incidentally, that means that that translation, we think about translations today, that translation was available not only for Jesus, but for Paul and the apostle and others. And there are some statements in the New Testament that look like they are based upon the Septuagint. Anyway, the name Exodus is a Greek term, and it means going out, going out, or the way out. And as compared to the Hebrew title, if you had a Hebrew Bible today, the title would be Shemoth, S-H-E-M-O-T-H in our letter, Shemoth. And that, that is based on the first word of the text. In, in the Hebrew Bible, now these are the names. Shemoth means names. <laughs> names starts the book, and so that's what the Hebrews called it, names. And uh, I think the, the Greek title, Exodus, is better because I believe that it's an appropriate designation for the book since the major event uh, or a major event, maybe I shouldn't say the, a major event is the Exodus, the leaving from Egypt by the children of Israel. Incidentally, that Exodus, the event, is definitely historical. It's not mythical. It's not a made-up story about history. It's, it's, uh, it's accurate history. And... and uh, the rest of our Bible helps us to see that in that the Exodus is mentioned in at least 17 other books of the Bible and references to God leading his people and God taking his people out of captivity are frequent. Um, I think that indicates its importance, the importance of this event, and, and it leads us to believe also that God wants us to know how significant that event was. Not just as a historical fact, but as an example of his care for his people and his deliverance of them. We might think of Exodus somewhat like a bridge, because it is in a sense. It connects the early history of man. That's what we were seeing in the book of Genesis, the beginning, the early days of mankind. And Exodus connects that early history with the development of the nation, a nation. Before this, there are nations. Now the development of a nation of God's people that he chose to be special. And, and not special... And in fact, God lets this be known uh, lest they think otherwise. Not special because you're special. Special because I chose you and I intended to use you to bring the Redeemer. God had, to, had a plan and it involved a nation, a particular man of that nation. But anyway, uh, that's how God worked his plan. Now, the, the time frame of the book itself is interesting because 
in one sense, technically, it covers 80 years. And, and those 80 years can be connected technically to the life of Moses. Two 40-year periods. Now, when we leave the book of Exodus, we're going to see another 40-year period. Moses' life can be divided into three 40-year periods. 40 years in, 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 as a part of the Egyptian culture, 40 years of, of uh, being away and then coming back and uh, then leading into the wilderness, which would be another 40 years. Um, the, the, the 80 years that is covered uh, actually extends to the setting up of the tabernacle. That's, that's sort of historically where we're going to end this book. But the truth of the matter is that the emphasis of this book centers on only about two years. In other words, yeah, we're given some details, but the real focus of the book is a two-year period in which God demands that his people be let go, and then a period of time that reaches the setting up of the tabernacle. Um, what is the setting of Exodus? Well, if you're familiar with it, of course, and this is redundant, but I need to emphasize it anyway. The situation that the Hebrew people found themselves in had changed dramatically since the last chapter of Genesis. You remember that Joseph, who had been in Egypt, again providentially, remember he tells his brothers God meant it for good to save you alive. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Joseph is in a position of prominence, second only to Pharaoh. And his family is invited to come to Egypt to take their uh, habitation there. There's been a famine in their land. It's not going to be over. There has been a famine everywhere, but the Egyptians, through Joseph's wise counsel, have prepared for it. So you bring the family here about 70 or 75, if you include Joseph's own family, they come to Egypt and they're treated very well. Pharaoh allows them to have their own special place to live, a very good place. Uh, he, he, he gives them a lot of freedom, and, and that freedom, of course, uh, it extends for some period of time, probably around uh, 300 years. Joseph dies at 110. We think he probably got to Egypt when he was only 17 or so, so that's almost 100 years. And then there's going to be a 300-year period where there is really silence. In other words, there's no description of what's going on because when Exodus opens, Joseph now has been dead for almost 300 years, maybe 275, 280, something like that. Uh, verse 6 of chapter 1, if you'll keep your Bible open at Exodus 1, Moses simply records the statement, and Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. So there is a change. All of the original inhabitants of, of the coming in party, they're gone. And so now time has passed. Well, a new king... And generally, it is believed, and we're not going to get into this detail, but from a different dynasty. 
there is some controversy about who ruled Egypt in the ancient days. There are people who think that there were a group of people who really were Semitic, like the Jews were in their origin, and that that's why Joseph's family was treated so well. I, I don't want to argue or defend that because I don't know if it's true. But we do know that there historically there's a change of dynasties. And, and a dynasty, the reason I'm saying that is because sometimes we use the term Pharaoh and we think it refers to one man. There were many Pharaohs, not just one, not the one in the time of Exodus, others. But anyway, a new Pharaoh, a new king arose and verse 8 says he did not know Joseph. Well, obviously, if Joseph had been dead for almost 300 years, of course he wouldn't know him. But it really means different than that. He did not know him in the sense of appreciating what Joseph had done for Egypt. He's not a, whether he's a student of history or not, he doesn't care. That doesn't matter to him anymore. We don't care what a guy did for us in the past. Let's look at the current situation. And verse 7 of chapter 1 says, The children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. I think there's a reason why Moses gives us all that information. I mentioned it last week. It is incredible that in the 400-year period of time, 70 or 75 became approximately 2.5 million people. That's pretty fruitful. <laughs> pretty fruitful. And so they were really multiplying at, at a rapid rate, and the numbers were getting larger and larger, and that triggered concern. Not just concern. Because in verses 9 and 10, and here is the new Pharaoh speaking. He said to the people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Now, more, possibly, yeah. I, I don't know how many inhabitants there were in Egypt per se that were Egyptians. I don't know about mightier because they had no army. They were not a part of the Egyptian army. They didn't have weapons necessarily. But if you're trying to create hysteria, you don't necessarily give all the facts. You just say, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. <laughs> all this possibility. Look, they're, they're growing, and if we get into war, they're going to side... Now, why would he say that? Had they given him any indication that there was turmoil between them? Not that we're told, but they might side with our enemies. They're not like us, and then they'll not only fight against us, but they'll leave, and then all this prosperity, and I'm sure that the Israelites created prosperity because in addition to their own personal multiplication, obviously their herds and flocks and everything else were multiplying as well to take care of all those people. So, so in, in one sense, this is an e economic problem. And uh, so what do you do? Well, verse 11, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. 
That's why I said to you earlier, I don't, I don't envision the Israelites being trained militarily or having weapons or anything because it was very easy. There's no mention of a conflict or a war. They just began to oppress them. And they, they set them to building cities uh, and, and uh, uh, other works. But verse 12 says that this didn't work. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. Oh my, this is getting worse and worse all the time. Well, Pharaoh had to decide on something more drastic. If making them work doesn't keep them from having babies, what do we do? Better start killing the babies. Particularly male babies. Can't have any male army or male leadership if you just keep on killing the males. And obviously they may have thought they could use the women for whatever they wanted of them. Verse 16. He says, when to, to Hebrew midwives, these were women who helped in the delivery of babies. When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, Incidentally, aren't you glad you ladies don't have to have birth on a birth stool? <laughs> if it is a son, uh, then you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, you shall save alive. So, so kill the male. Um, well, skip over to verses 20 uh, in chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 2. And we're going to, I'm not really skipping this per se, but when you skip over chapter 2 and verse 23, it happened in the process of time, we don't know how much time, that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. Now, it doesn't mean that God didn't know what was going on. It just meant that they began to really cry for help. And so God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. God had not forgotten them, and God would seek their help by bringing a deliverer. Incidentally, let's be sure we understand this because this is important. What has happened to them is not really surprising or should not have been surprising. Here's why. Go back to Genesis 15. The same Abraham who was told, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have descendants. They're going to be multiplied. The same God in chapter 15, beginning at verse 13, tells Abraham this. No, see this, certainly know for sure that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. It's pretty specific, isn't it? And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge, afterwards they shall come out with great possession. Well, they, they should have known the first part of that for sure. 400 years, God is going to let them go through uh, difficulty. Uh, that's a part of God's plan. Um, 
And so God would have to send somebody to deliver them. And that deliverer, of course, would be Moses. Exodus describes how Moses became the deliverer and how he led them as the deliverer in the wilderness. Now, when did they leave Egypt? Not really significantly important, but we would date about 1450 B.C. 1450 B.C. There are some who argue for a later date, 1290, and I'm not going to get into that argument, but I take the earlier, the 1450 date. Okay, what, what do we need to see in the book of Exodus? Well, there, there are several things that I want to mention to you. We need to see that God was faithful to his promise that Abraham's descendants would indeed become a great nation. That's what's happened. They've become a numerous nation, not just a single family. And we also need to see that God's promise uh, spoke of possessing a particular land. You will leave this, and I'm going to give you a land that's going to be your land. You're going to be in a land that's not yours. I'm going to give you a land that is not yours initially. Exodus will get them on that journey to the land. It won't get them there because that comes later, but it'll get them on the journey at least, started out. The early part of Exodus, chapters 1 through 12, are going to show how the deliverance occurred. I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. What we also need to see is Moses. We need to see Moses in Exodus, because we're going to learn a lot about him. Uh, We're going to learn a lot about God's people, the the people of Moses. And what we're going to see in Exodus as we read it is that there are a lot of blessings. God blesses his people, but we also see a tremendous amount of ingratitude on their part. We see an abundance of complaining and whining on their part, even though God had been gracious to them. We're also going to see God's might or power displayed. We see it in the plagues. We see it uh, in what he brought on the Egyptians as far as the closing of the Red Sea. We see it in the giving of manna and quail in the wilderness. All of those events are miraculous and they demonstrate the power of God. Uh, Exodus is a book that has miracles in it. Okay. We see in the book of Exodus the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. This is sometimes called the law of Moses. You need to be careful because it's not Moses' law. It's God's law through Moses. He's the law giver, but not the law originator. Uh, Moses never had the authority to tell God's people how they ought to live. God would tell them. Because he's the lawgiver. That's chapter 20 beginning of Exodus. Chapter 20 and following. We're going to see the beginning of the priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood in chapter 29. We're going to see the sad story of the golden calf. Known to most Bible students. Chapter 32. We're going to see details concerning the construction of the tabernacle. This is where some people get really sleepy when they see the construction details of the tabernacle because they're quite extensive. But God wanted uh, the tabernacle to be a special thing for the Jews and it represented to them 
for a long period of time the presence of God among them. That's going to last not just during the time of its construction, all the way up till the time of the building of the temple. So, so that's a long period of time um, when you add it all together. Um, we're going to see, hopefully, similarities in what happened to the Jews and what happens to us as relates to redemption or deliverance. The Jews needed a deliverer. That was Moses. You and I need a deliverer, not from physical bondage, but from spiritual bondage. That Redeemer is Jesus. Uh, we read about the Passover, and we know how the Jews celebrated that with the Passover lamb. The New Testament talks about our Passover lamb. That Passover lamb is Jesus again. Um, we're going to see about Aaron and the priesthood. The New Testament is going to say we have a greater high priest. Again, Jesus. And so many of the details of Exodus find similarity in Jesus. And we need to be uh, conscious of that. Four, if you were trying to reduce this, four significant parts of Exodus. First of all, things related to Moses. Uh, his birth, how it occurred, events around the birth, his selection to be the redeemer or the, the deliverer, and, and how he struggled with that idea that he should be the one. Uh, and then finally giving in and going. And then the leadership that he showed when he finally accepted the challenge to go and face Pharaoh and then to lead his people out of the land of Egypt into the wilderness. Um, second part would be Mount Sinai. And, and that place becomes special, not because it is special, but because of what happened there. Mount Sinai is the place where the law is given, um, and, and that becomes significant to the Jews. Now, it was given, please remember, for Jews. The law of Moses was given for Jews. It wasn't given for Gentiles. It wasn't given for other people. And that's why it's okay, not just okay, it's necessary that it be replaced by a new covenant. That covenant was for a particular people. God had a covenant in mind, Jeremiah talks about it, others talk about it, that will be far more encompassing than one group of people. Not just an ethnic group of people, but for all people God would create a covenant, the new covenant. So here's what you have to understand. When, when we're dealing with this exodus, have to understand there's an old covenant and, and that that covenant is temporary. That covenant is not going to achieve all God wanted it to achieve. It had its strong points, but it had some definite drawbacks and that man couldn't live up to it. And if he couldn't live up to it, there was no real way to take care of what he had done in disobedience. Yeah, he could offer sacrifice and so on. But we read in the, in the New Testament that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. So in reality, it would be necessary for there to be a greater sacrifice 
in the new covenant that could wash away our sins, the blood of Jesus. Okay. Third, connected to Mount Sinai would be the law itself. Now, the, the sad thing about people who don't know much about the Bible, they, they place emphasis especially and particularly and sometimes only on the Ten Commandments. You may have had the experience that some of us have had, and that is for somebody to say, well, you know, I try, I know I'm not the best person, but I try to keep the Ten Commandments. Well, it's great if you were a Jew living under the Old Covenant that you keep them, but what about today? Should you be keeping them? If you're keeping the Ten Commandments, are you worshiping on Saturday as they did? No, most people just think that's the law, the Ten Commandments. It's significant. I'm not de demeaning its significance, but there is much more to the law than the Ten Commandments. There are a lot of other sundry things, different, different things about relationships and hygiene and other things that are a part of the law of Moses. In fact, some have counted maybe as many as 600 requirements in the law. A lot of things to remember. Um, the tabernacle. That would be the fourth part. The tabernacle. That special tent. That's really what it was, was a tent. But, but a tent built in a very special way with a holy place and a most holy place. And the construction details are significant because they're given in minute detail and they are important but important only because they had to be followed absolutely. God did not allow Moses nor anyone else in constructing the tabernacle to say, you know, I don't think this tent's wide enough. Let's make it a little wider. I don't think it's long enough. I, I don't really think two rooms are enough. We need three rooms. God didn't allow that liberty. You make all things according to the pattern, God said, that was shown you. Why is that important? You think God's changed? You think God said to the Jews, I want you to build the tabernacle just this way. Later, he would say, I want you to build the temple just this way. And then he comes to the New Testament. God said, I don't care. Do anything you want to do. I don't care how you live as a Christian. I don't care when you worship, where you worship, how you worship. I don't care about those things. You think that's true? I don't. I believe God is as precise now as he was at any time in history. That's our God. We're the ones that are not precise many times. Oh, I don't think God cares about that. You ever hear somebody say that? I don't think God cares about that. Well, unless you read that in the scriptures, are you the mind of God? Now, the construction details are important. I've already said that. But not as important as what occurred there in, in, a, in a true sense. In other words, they're important because they had to be followed exactly, but it's not just building the thing, it's what happens with it, what it, repre what it represents. Okay, now let, let me try to do a little, just one other thing, and that is let's narrow it a little more to three parts of the book of Exodus. If you were going to divide the book, if you wanted a synopsis of the book, just a quick overview. Three parts. First of all, the story of, of deliverance, chapters 1 through 12. And what these 12 chapters would tell you uh, would be about the oppression. We've already talked about that. 
about God determining that he would need to find someone to be the man who would lead his people out. That's Moses. Uh, Moses uh, could have been dead <laughs> had his parents not had faith to try to keep him alive. And they are commended for that in the New Testament. Uh, he was saved, and, and again, providentially, because where does he wind up? Well, he winds up in Pharaoh's daughter's house. What better place to start as far as being protected? But at age 40, Moses gets in trouble. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to give more details than I should. You, you know that Moses' mother had the privilege of actually weaning him, taking him for a while, by Pharaoh's daughter's permission. She didn't know that that was Moses' mother, but, but Moses' mother actually had him for a while. And, and, and it's my firm conviction, you don't have to believe this, but my firm conviction that it's Moses' mother who instills in him the things he needs to know uh, in life. Because when he gets to 40, he looks and he sees, what? A Hebrew being mistreated. Okay? What, why does that matter to him if he's an Egyptian, raised in an Egyptian's house? He knows. He's been trained. Somebody has put that in his head. And of course, then he makes a mistake in that he, in defending the man, he kills the Egyptian. And, and thinking he's done something helpful, the two Hebrew men now are arguing, and they and Moses tries to stop them. What do they say? You're going to kill us too? Like you kill that Egyptian? Well, Moses said, time to leave. Moses had the first exodus. Remember that? He, he exits. And he spends 40 years away from his people. Shepherd. And evidently content with that life. But God appears to him miraculously again. How? Burning bush, right? Take off your sandals. You're in the presence of holiness. God says, I, I got a job for you, Moses. I want you to go and deliver my people. Who, me? I can't do that. So Moses goes through a series of arguments with God about why he can't do it. That sound familiar to us, some of us? We argue with God about why we can't do something God wants us to do. God finally says, heard enough, you're going to go. Moses goes. Aaron is with him. And they go through a little series, and we won't take the time to do that, to try to convince Pharaoh, but it doesn't work. And so God starts bringing plagues on the Egyptians. Now, incidentally, the first three of the ten plagues were not just Egyptians. The Jews also faced those things. From four onward, it's only the Egyptians. Now, the tenth, it could have affected the Jews had they not cooperated with God. But from four through nine, these things affect the Egyptians. And each time it looks like, in some ways, the severity increases. It's all kinds of things done miraculously through Moses, but by God's power. And Pharaoh just goes through that process over and over again. I'm sorry, and the next day I'm not sorry. 
And so finally God says, okay, no more of this. One more plague and then you're going to leave. And that plague would be the, the, the death of the firstborn of every family in Egypt. Firstborn male. And, and the death angel would pass over. The Jews had to prepare for this. But it's also the time when the Passover would be celebrated, uh, a, a, an event that the Jews would have to remember throughout history. Uh, modern Jews still supposedly remember it. Uh, but, but, but the Jews were to remember this. From now on, you remember that God redeemed you. Well, th they leave. Pharaoh finally gives up, lets them go. But he immediately changes his mind. Oh, I made a mistake. Let's get the army and go after them. They get to the Red Sea. Now, if you look at a Bible map and you look at the Red Sea, it's a fairly large body of water. And you do not have to accept the premise that they're going to go to the widest part of the Red Sea to cross. The Bible didn't even say that. They do cross, but they cross obviously at the upper end. Now, it is not, as some critics say, a sea of reeds that they just walk through and anybody could have walked through. That contradicts what God's Word says. God's Word says that miraculously the waters were so great that they had to be opened up for the children of Israel to walk through, and that when they closed on the Egyptian army after them, they were destroyed. They were drowned. That's a lot of water. God has now gotten them to the other side of the Red Sea. It's not very long, though, on the other side of the Red Sea that they begin to complain. Uh, Chapter 16, if you look just for a moment. Chapter 16. Uh, look at verses 2 and 3. The whole, no, the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Now, you think they really meant that? Wish we had died back there? When we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full, you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. We could have just stayed slaves. Yeah, We didn't complain about that, did we? Uh, well, yeah, we did. But you brought us out here to die. And God answers their complaint by giving them manna, this un... The word manna means, what is it? <laughs> because they didn't know what it was. We don't know what it was, but it was some kind of bread-like thing that appeared every day for 40 years. Marvelously, miraculously. In fact, it was so miraculous that God said, you know, on the sixth day, you gather enough for two days. Don't, don't, don't go out on the Sabbath to do it. It's two days. It'll be okay. And, and, and during this process, some of the Jews are so hard-headed that they gather too much, and it spoils. But if they gather it on the sixth day for two days, it doesn't spoil. That's, that's miraculous. 
God made it that way. So, so God gives them what they want. It doesn't stop them. They complain about water. It refed them in chapter 17. God gives them water from a rock. He delivers them in chapter 17 from the Amalekites, who will be a perpetual enemy from that point forward. Um, and then they, they get to the, the Mount of Sinai. And God gives his law there. Uh, I, I'm not going to try to relate all of this because it's really not possible. But the, the, the details about the tabernacle are given while they're there, how to construct it and what it's to be for. And then there is in chapter 32 that sorry episode about the golden calf. Moses is up on the mount. While he's gone, Aaron succumbs to the temptation, and I'm going to be sure I get this in, of getting jewels and gold from the, from the Israelites and making of it an idol, a bull calf. Now, why is that significant? Because that's what the Egyptians did. And I've mentioned this before, and that is, there is no real definitive statement about the spirituality of the Jews in Egypt. There is none. And we're not told they were really religious. They really followed God. They really honored God. It, we're told they cried out when they were in oppression. But what were they really like? I am afraid... My opinion, only mine, I am afraid they absorb too much of the Egyptian culture. Because why is it it was a bull calf? Why didn't he do something else? A horn toad or something else? I don't know. But, but it looks like the children of Israel got too much of Egypt in them. They wanted to get out of Egypt, but Egypt was in them. And God, of course, is not pleased. And, and more than one time during this whole process, God is thinking about, I, I don't know if I want to keep going on with this group of people. And bless his heart, Moses, so frustrated so many times with his people, begs God not to destroy them. And God listens to him. Incidentally, that is a grand statement about a righteous man and God listening to him. If Moses had not been righteous, I don't know that God would have listened to him when he begged for his people. If we want to save our nation, really, if we want to save the church, we've got to be righteous people when we ask God to do it. The covenant is renewed. You know, it's remember Moses gets so upset he throws those tablets of stone down and they're broken and then he has to get them again and uh, they renew the covenant in chapter 34. Then the book closes in chapter 40 with the way the Lord was guiding them. And again, miraculously, they travel by a cloud which moved before them in the wilderness. And God, they only moved when God wanted them to move. Okay, we're out of time. Thank you for being